We're outside, it's beautiful on our recording day. And this week, we're going to focus from 1 Peter in our series that we'll be doing concurrently with 1 Corinthians. And this series is called Standing Strong in Storms. We've heard read from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 to 11. As I've been thinking about this passage, it's been really clear and evident that Peter's experience, Peter's life journey, Peter's memory of being with Jesus has so influenced and permeates this wonderful letter that we've been working our way through. That Peter's day-to-day lived experience with the Lord Jesus Christ has reshaped and recharacterized who Peter is and how he understands what it means to live, to be a disciple, to relate to others. Of course, that's really clear. I mean, when you think that he was a fisherman by at the lake, day by day, casting his nets into the sea. Coming back at daybreak, cleaning the fish, selling the fish, preparing for the next day. And that encounter where Jesus came to the lake, asked for his boat and preached and said to Simon, come follow me. And from that moment on, we read in the gospel stories, that adventure, the highs and the lows, right through to Peter with Jesus, denying him, abandoning him. And then beautifully again at the lakeside, Peter being restored. So as we've heard this passage read, I want you to hold that in mind because it infuses so much of of what Peter has said throughout this whole letter, but particularly in these verses today. But before I delve right in, I I want you to remember back, if you're uh, old enough like me, or perhaps if you're younger, you wonder in a slightly mystified fashion what I'm on about. But I remember going uh, on holiday uh, when we were very young down from Sheffield to Tenby, and we would load the car up. It was, uh, we had a long journey. There were very few motorways. And uh, we, we set out and dad had his AA road map to hand at the front seat. And usually as somewhere along the way, probably Shrewsbury or something like that, that there would be a wrong turning. And there'd be that argument between mum and dad of, should we stop and look at the map or should we uh, stop and talk to someone? And we would, my brother and I sit in the back and kind of like chuckle. Eventually we'd get there. But as I began to drive, I realized the map book was so important. And I would have one always in the back of the car, the battered, tattered, slightly bent pages. And it would always, I don't know if you remember this, be that where you wanted to go was right on the seam or you'd have to just turn the page. It was never quite as straightforward as it would seem. In London, when I studied at Spurgeon's, one of the car essentials was the A to Z of London. And my goodness, it was confusing uh, trying to navigate the streets and the turns and the one-way systems and the, uh, the, the fast routes, if there were any in London, to get around. But then the advent of sat-nav. Amazing that on our phone and and integrated with our car, these uh, technological devices that allow us to get supposedly easily from A to B. But you're probably aware that that's not always the case. At the moment in Chipping Camden, or just last week, two of the main entry points, two of the roads into Camden were closed 
for, um, for construction work and uh, some house building. And it caused all sorts of chaos. I came across some, some stories of uh, Satnav that actually over-relying on these devices causes kind of sometimes a lot of chaos. The RAC reckoned that uh, satnavs cause close to 200 million pounds in damage every normal year. I know we've been driving less recently. For instance, a Bel Belgian lorry driver once caused 20,000 pounds worth of uh, destruction in one disastrous turn of events after his navigation system told him to turn left and he ended up in a cul-de-sac. In a fit of blind panic, the driver accelerated careering straight across a mini roundabout, trapping one car under his lorry and damaging five more. For those of us who went to the Standing Strong event uh, a couple of years ago on the coach, uh, we discovered the joys of Satnav. Personally, the coach, the 53-seater, ended up in a residential area at half past seven in the morning with cars parked on either side of the roads, thinking we're never, ever gonna get out of this cul-de-sac. Amazingly, the driver managed to do a multiple point turn and get this huge coach back out. Satnavs, a small mistake, can come at a great price. A female owner of a 96,000 pound Mercedes-Benz blindly followed the directions the Satnav had said from her um, in her car. It told her, ironically, to drive towards the River Sense in Leicestershire. The river and the rushing torrent dragged her car 200 meters down the river. Thankfully, she was unharmed, but the car was ruined. We're told, and the warnings if you choose to look at the intro screen, say, don't take it as gospel. A number of drivers get st got stuck in a village of Crackpot in Yorkshire after their sat-nav told them to go up an unclassified road, even though the sign said, no through road. And finally, one that made me chuckle, the programming in the wrong, di wrong destination. Um, uh, a Syrian truck driver once drove a 32-ton uh, vehicle to G Gibraltar Point in Lincolnshire in England. He was actually seeking to get to Gibraltar, but made a 1,600-mile detour from his intended destination. In Peter's writing, an encouragement to the churches scattered as we saw in chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2, to the elect, God's elect, scattered across the regions. He writes to help them navigate in life. He writes to help them navigate how to journey. He encourages them that no matter what they experience, suffering included, that the navigation that Jesus brings is timeless. He says, fully embrace the example of Jesus Christ in life. Not the latest fad, not a kind of rushed synopsis or a current uh, trend or, or it, let's just abandon the old and embrace the new. For Peter, his encounter, his journey with Jesus had so transformed and revolutionized and honed his life from his name change to his life change to Peter being a world changer. He said, stick with Jesus. Navigate life following the example of Jesus. And as such, the key trait, the key part 
of these verses we've read is humility. He sees, Peter says, it, this key theme in following Jesus Christ is always keep Jesus Christ as the focus. Always keep him center stage. Always keep him in the main frame. You see, Peter was more and more enamored with Jesus. From his beginnings, the three years of ministry, through his failure and restoration, his eyes were opened, not only at the transfiguration, but encountering the risen, resurrected Jesus. Behold the Lord. And so Peter encourages and writes to the church, to believers, you and I, not just leaders, but each one of us, and says in uh, verse 6, chapter 5, verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. There's two aspects to humility. One of which is perhaps the more obvious and the more known uh, of practicing service to others, of, of looking out for the interests of others. But implicitly bound up in Peter's understanding of humility is a willingness to accept God's will, even in suffering. What do I mean? Well, think back to, uh, to John's Gospel. In the Last Supper, on the night that Jesus gathered his friends as they broke bread. John recounts in chapter 13 that, that Jesus showed them the full extent of his love. He gathered them and took off his outer garments, wrapped a cloth around his waist and washed their feet. And John is really clear to say that he showed them the full extent of his love and said, you'll be blessed if you do likewise. The full extent of his love in foot washing. Jesus was clothed in humility. A couple of years ago I was uh, attending youth group, it was in the middle of the winter and it was one of those cold winter nights and, and I thought I'd uh, look out a, a jumper to put on because it was cold and I rummaged in my drawer and I found a, a jumper, it's one I hadn't worn for quite a long time, it was at the bottom of the drawer and it was one that I, I'd had at university, believe it or not, way back in the early 90s. And I thought, oh, that could do with an antique. So I put it on and I turned up at a youth group. And one of our young people at that point, who was about to go and do a fashion course, turned and said, Edward, you look so fashionable today. Is that a new jumper? I said no, smiled and said, um, actually, it's far older than you are. And she looked aghast but amazed uh, that this uh, piece of item, uh, this clothing, this garment had um, lasted so long, but actually still looked good. Uh, my godson, uh, sometimes I, I give him a few pieces of clothing. The, one of the last ones was a, a, a top that I bought in Zimbabwe in 1993 when I was on an action team. And now he thinks it's the best thing. He's a student and uh, his, his uh, kind of student friends are like, wow, that top's amazing. Where did you get it? And um, I think he probably says he got it off the internet. But fashions come and go. Any dad knows that if you keep it long enough, it'll come back into fashion. But it's amazing how things go out of fashion, even in the space of one season or one year. But Peter is 
really definite. The characteristics of Jesus, including humility, are unchanging. Jesus clothed himself in humility that is always in fashion. Humility is always in fashion in God's eyes. It may not be what the world celebrates and looks to. It may not be what is uh, on top of news items or the magazines or on the influences on social media. It may not be what turns heads in this day and age. That might be swagger and bravado or bluntness. Peter says humility is that essential clothing for a believer. Paul in Colossians 3 has a list. He says, put off these traits, put off uh, uh, in chapter 3 and put on the likeness of Jesus Christ. You can read it in Colossians chapter 3. Peter says to the churches he loves, his sisters and brothers, that this is so vital. Jesus clothed himself in humility. In, hum, in humility, he took that towel, wrapped it around himself and washed the disciples' feet. Humble service as we care for others. It's been so encouraging to hear in the last days over these past months of humble service, uncelebrated, perhaps unnoticed, but the church of God humbly serving in food bank, in neighbourly acts of kindness, in fetching prescriptions, in making sure through phone calls that one another is okay, of humility, of looking out to the interests of others. Peter would be smiling. I'm sure Jesus is, as humility is enacted. This week, the one commentator in The Spectator got it spectacularly wrong when he said the church has been absent. And so many commentators have said, don't you realise how central the church has been in these difficult days, loving and caring and contending and standing with those who are most struggling? Humility. Clothing ourselves in Jesus Christ. But remember I said there's another aspect to humility, and that is acceptance of, of God's will. Peter writes, cast all your anxiety on him straight after verse 5 to submit yourselves to one another, clothe yourselves with humility because God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I wonder if in Peter's mind, as he, he writes that, he thinks back to Gethsemane, when Jesus, through the watches of the night, wrestled in prayer, humbly submitting himself to the Father's will, humbly looking to the interests of others rather than that of himself. It's interesting, isn't it, the word, cast all your anxiety on him for he cares for you. That word is a fishing term. I wonder, as he calls the church, with this sense of nets being thrown into the sea, 
in a deliberate way of saying, give it to God, throw it to God. Have a bigger view. Especially in verse 9, we're told that uh, resist the devil, resist him standing firm in your faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Sufferings there is plural. It's not just our individual sufferings, but the sufferings of the body of Jesus. Those people, those of us who are called by his name, who walk with him and find that suffering follows closely. We're so thankful as a church to be partnered with Open Doors. We're so thankful for our links across the worldwide church, regularly praying for our family. Nameless, we perhaps never meet this side of glory, but contending together, standing strong together in the storms. Humility, our family, as it suffers for the gospel, Peter would say that's the normal experience, replete again and again through this letter he writes to the churches. This is the Christian experience. For a moment, in verse, uh, verse 8, he, he calls them to be sober, to be alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion for someone to devour. Peter was challenged by the fireside in Jerusalem. You're one of his disciples, aren't you? No, I'm not. Three times he was asked and he fled. Learning from the failure, having been restored lovingly by Jesus, that's his nature, to forgive and restore. Peter says, rather than run, stand firm. Stand firm in the suffering. Stand firm and stand strong in the storms. Don't deny. Trust the Lord. Even if that means accepting the consequences, but trusting in the sovereign will of God. Notice that he doesn't spend a long time focusing on the devil. He doesn't give a kind of whole uh, list of things that we should do and, and kind of... Uh, bring out the characteristics or traits of the evil one. He just says the devil is there. He is seeking to cause you to deny, to run, to fail, to stumble. Rather be alert. Put your steady trust in the sovereign Lord, in Jesus Christ. In verse 10, he comes to a crescendo. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will restore himself restore you and make you strong, uh, strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. That in the very real struggles and experience of our believers in the first century and now, whether that's in the North Cotswold or wherever you happen to be, tuning in, listening, hearing me speak and the Lord speak to you. In fellowship with our sisters and brothers around the world who this is their daily experience. This, this verse is so vital. For a little while. For a short time, 
until glory. Peter wants to say to them, even in the struggles, even when it costs so much, be assured of his grace. Be assured of the solidarity and fellowship of the family of God with us together. Even if his return is delayed, trust. I love how Peter, in writing this letter, is clearly aware of the reality of believers, but his journey. The image, I think, that Peter is evoking is this. Each morning as the boat returned to the shore, the fishing vessels, having worked hard, struggled through the night, sold the fish and now tending the nets. The fisherman, pictured by Peter in this story, is Jesus. As the fisherman on the, the edge of the lake patiently mends the ripped nets, such that they are perfect again, so the Lord Jesus will perfectly restore his church, ripped apart by suffering. Let's pray. Dear Spirit of the living God, Holy Spirit of Jesus, would you fill us afresh? And by us, I mean those part of our fellowship who are tuning in and with us through YouTube now, but also as our family in the world, throughout the world, in cities and villages, nations, May they stand firm and resist the evil one who would cause and seek to, to get us to deny our faith, to doubt, to waver. We may stand strong, confident in who Jesus is. He died upon that cross. His blood was shed to free us, to rescue us, to call us together, to empower us and to gift us with the Spirit to live for you. And I pray in whatever circumstance, whatever we are living in and through right now, mark us with humility. Clothe us with humility. To love you with all of our heart and mind, soul and strength, to trust your will and your ways and to love our neighbor as ourself to look to the interests of others, not just of ourselves. And I thank you for the church in this nation, the church in our community and the church global. Again and again, in unseen acts of humility, of generosity, of kindness and compassion. More Lord, more Lord in us to the glory and honour and name of Jesus. Amen.